I believe that being in CODA saved my life. I believe that being part of the fellowship saved my life. Welcome to episode 357 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Connie, Mary, Heather, Brooke, John Cole, and Ken. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Connie, Mary, Heather, Brooke, John Quill, and Ken, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that, in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. I'm going to read Reaching Out. I made it into this program because someone else worked their 12th step on me. Someone passed it on to me. Someone was out there after they got clean and sober, caring about others. I need to never, ever forget that. Had they simply gone on with their lives and forgotten about people like me who are still out there using and suffering, I wouldn't be here today. My gratitude begins with that fact. It is with that gratitude in mind that I reach out to others, especially the newcomers. I need to have them in my life. That is where my spirituality begins. For me, spirituality comes from caring about others. I have found that the more I focus on improving the quality of the lives of others, the less I am into myself and my will. I feel a freedom and peace from within. The gifts I am beginning to receive in my life are greater than I could ever have imagined. Something else I have done is that I have forgiven myself. I have forgiven myself for being an addict. I have forgiven myself for all the damage I did to my life, to my physical health, to my career and finances. But most of all, I have forgiven myself for all the horrible, negative and unloving things I have felt about myself. It was not until I offered and accepted my own forgiveness that I was truly able to grow in my sobriety. Welcome. My name is Spencer. I'm your host today. And joining me today is Geraldine, whose voice we just heard. Welcome. Welcome to The Recovery Show. Thank you. We are here to hear your story of recovery. Thank you very much. And it's a great pleasure. I was hesitant about doing this, but as a codependent, I remember going to a meeting and someone said, you're just the worried well, (laughs) which I felt very upset by because there's nothing good about being a codependent. It's a horrifying existence. And it's incredible how I've realized that I started coded 11 years ago, how much suffering I have experienced, but it had become like so much of a fabric of my life that I almost thought that was normal. I just thought it was the normal way to live, which was to suffer and to feel pain and constantly living with suicidal thoughts and and feeling really exhausted with life and kind of one foot in and one foot out. What brought me into CODA at the age of 50, I started, and, and I was quite content at this stage of my life, I thought, 
started a relationship with somebody that I met and had known him before and I thought I'd met the man of my dreams I had had relationships I had been in a relationship with somebody many years before for nearly 18 years so it wasn't like I was a novice and I had a successful relationship and I'd been in therapy I really felt like I got my life straight then I met this man who I'd known and I think that was the part of the reason why he got to me so quickly was because I thought I could trust him because I had been a friend I thought he was like the man of my dreams. He was my knight in shining armour. He was going to fill that space. He was going to make me complete because that's how I thought in those days. That sounds a little familiar, trying to fill some void in me with somebody else. Yeah. Absolutely. I'd been in therapy for 10 years in my 30s. I knew I hadn't finished. I knew there was still something that I had to complete, but I didn't know what it was. It was only really when I met this guy and subsequently since that I got to understand better what it was that I was still lacking. I'll give you a little bit of a history because it might help to build a picture. I'm the oldest daughter of a family of four children. My mum was Irish. She came to uh, England in the 50s and met my dad, who was a Londoner. And uh, my mum thought that she was coming to London where the streets were paved with gold. My mum's family were very poor. Her father died when she was 15 and she wanted a new life and a life away from Ireland. And she was a Catholic. My dad was a Protestant atheist. My dad was brought up a Protestant, but he was actually an atheist. And for my mum and dad actually to marry at that time, it was a time when there was the Troubles. And England and Ireland were at war with one another, effectively. The fact that my mum married my dad was quite unique. And in some ways, later in life, I really appreciate that. I felt it's given me a lot more freedom in my thinking. My mum could have got married to an Irishman and I could have really lived the Catholic oppression. We went to church every Sunday. My dad was ambivalent about it, so he didn't really mind that we were raised as Catholics. My mum had four children in five years. And my mum was obviously very depressed when we were younger. I think what she wanted was she came to England to find a life and she wanted money and she wanted to have a life that she never had. They were married for three years before she had me, which was quite unusual for those days. And I always remember she told me that she had a really good job in the GPO. She was getting a promotion and then she discovered she was pregnant with me. And it was obvious, by the way, she told me when I was a kiddie that she didn't really want any children Mm. so from the very beginning I knew I wasn't wanted my enmeshment with her was acute I was a good baby you were a very good baby she said (laughs) meaning you were quiet I was quiet and I was compliant but I lived in a constant state of terror I guess I sensed from the very beginning that I wasn't safe and then when I was 18 months of age my mum was pregnant again with my sister and she left me with an aunt because in those days women used to go into hospital and they were in for often over a week she left me with an aunt who I wasn't familiar with and it was catastrophic for me it was that stages of detachment that John Bowlby talks about where the child starts to, to miss the mother and then begins to go into a state of panic and terror I do remember bits of it I remember feeling terrified and what happens is that the, the, the child detaches completely from the mother. So when she came to get me, she said that I didn't acknowledge her at all. I guess for me, my mum never, ever came back to get me. 
my mum never came back. So I was constantly looking for her. All my life I was looking for her. This is, was very unconscious, sure. but, but um, constantly looking for her. So when she had my sister, my mum must have had a serious depression. And then she had my two brothers and she just couldn't. My dad wanted more children. My dad came from a family of 10 and he wanted more children and mum decided after she'd had the two girls, two boys, that was it. So she went to the doctor and got herself on the pill, which was something for those days. So yeah. that'll give you a bit of the measure of my mum. She wasn't some compliant woman. She was determined in many respects. And she certainly ruled the roost in the house. She was a typical Irish matriarch. My dad really took back seat. But she was very depressed and she could become quite violent. So if she lost it with us and we just didn't get hit. She used to beat us. And mm. I remember times getting quite severe beatings from her. I just remember as a child just doing anything that I could to just not cause her to lose it. I remember it was li like living on a knife edge constantly, almost like holding my breath, being so terrified of her because she could swing one way or the other. I just remember feeling miserable all the time as a child, really unhappy, but never showed it. And I guess what happened was I became so so super independent. I didn't want to rely on her. In fact, I became like her mum. I became my mum's mum hmm. and started to look after her. So our roles reversed. She used to talk to me like I was another adult. I don't think she even saw me. She'd tell me everything about how she was feeling about my dad. And I was, well, when I was tiny, I was young. And I had the responsibility of looking after my brothers and sisters, even though I was only young myself. But I grew up very quickly and I didn't really have a childhood at all. So I never felt any kind of freedom. And I remember somebody saying something about, think about the freedom that you felt as a child. I, thought, I don't think I never felt free as a child. I constantly felt I had to be on guard, on duty. And, and I remember feeling guilty if I was playing because it was almost like I wasn't allowed to play. That's how I felt because I was the oldest. I had to be the most sensible. I grew up as a very serious but very shy. I was incredibly shy. I was incredibly withdrawn and detached. I was the good one. I never caused her any problems because I was too scared to, whereas my sister on the other hand, was she was like off doing all sorts of things. And so were my brothers. But I didn't do anything. I was like the good girl. And to some extent, maybe the protector for your siblings. Yes, yes, definitely. Because I remember when my mum would lose it, I would actually draw her fire onto me to stop her from beating them. My childhood was just... And I didn't, I found it hard to make friends, not surprisingly. I was very isolated. I didn't like school. I found learning difficult. I remember I just wanted to go home. I never wanted to be at school. And I guess what I was wanting to do was to be near my mum to make sure she was all right. I remember sitting there, listening to the teachers opening their mouths and not knowing what the hell they were talking about. So in the, the Charlie Brown TV shows, the adults don't have words coming out of their mouths. And the, the sound is just... Sounds like that was your experience in school. Yeah, I, I was not an inspiring pupil. Now I understand I was in a constant state of terror and I was not hypervigilant. I used to have terrible nightmares as a child. The world was just really scary. The only time I think there was any kind of 
joys sometimes was we used to play out on the streets as kids in those days that's what you did and I used to love playing out on the streets because that felt like being free out of the house and being free and being with the other children but I never strayed too far I still stayed within my mother's reach in case she needed me the interesting thing was I'm brought up as a Catholic and I actually used to love going to church I found a lot of peace there I used to pray every night as we were it's the weirdest thing because despite how I felt, I always felt something or someone was taking care of me. I always felt that from the time I was a, a little girl. I felt it was like my guardian angel. That's what I thought it was. The other thing actually I experienced as a child was I always used to see another child. There was another child. Sometimes I would be in a room on my own and I'd see another child in the room running across the room and hiding. And when I went into therapy years later, my therapist said that was possibly the disassociated part of myself, the disconnected part of myself. So I'm hearing this and I'm hearing a whole bunch of stuff that is going to carry forward into adult life and be, as we say, survival skills that are no longer helping. Is that true? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Absolutely. I think my inner world, there was a lot of t turmoil. My, my emotional regulation was very poor. I was very hypervigilant. But of course, in that, I didn't know that, of course, this is now I'm using the language that I now understand right. to describe myself. But the way I coped with it was I brutally suppressed it. And interestingly, what I did was I forgot a lot. I would forget and not denial. It wasn't denial. It was yeah. forgetting was my way of coping with the extreme darkness and fears that were inside me and I guess what I started to develop was that false self okay. so I started to come as um, a as somebody who didn't need very much who was able to cope with things it's like a facade management if things got too much for me I would freeze out I would just ice things out and I do remember one of my early boyfriends used to call me the ice queen <laughs> that's actually how I coped was by freezing out my emotions my feelings right. to stop myself from feeling the terror that was constantly threatening to overwhelm me to give you an example when I was 10 I got severe bronchitis and I used to wake up in the middle of the night not being able to breathe and I used to just get out of bed I knew exactly what I had to do I leant over the bed just waited for my lungs to open up because I'd wake up not being able to breathe. Uh -huh. And then my lungs would open and I'd just get back into bed. And then one night, got out of bed and leant over the bed and it wasn't happening. I thought, I'm going to die. And I, I remember thinking, I thought when you were dying, your life flashes before you. But all I want to do is live. I don't want to die. But then this peaceful feeling just came over me and I must have been starting to lose consciousness. And I thought, oh, it's all right. This is OK. I'm not scared anymore. Mm. And then, of course, what happened was as I relaxed, then my lungs started to open. Then I just got back into bed. And my therapist years later said to me, did you not think about going to your mum? And as she said it, I thought, why would I do that? <laughs> yeah, I, I hear that. I do. Yeah. It didn't even cross my mind to go to her to get comfort at all. So that's how it had become. My need for my mother and a another person was just completely shut down from the time I was very young. 
And so I just became this really super independent individual. When bad things happened to me, I never told my mum. When I was being bullied at school, I never told my mum. I just suffered it. And and that was a lot to carry from the time I was very young. And the despair that would begin to boil over in me at times was just terrible. I never got any kind of recognition. I remember my mum saying, because I had a friend, Christine, who was Polish. She was very, she was really lovely looking, I remember, as a, and uh, when we were young together. And she said, oh, Christine, she's so lovely, so pretty. But she never once acknowledged me in that way, never once acknowledged me and what I look like. So I developed a very poor body image. I thought I was fat. I thought I was ugly. I've swung between anorexia and bulimia for a while, trying to lose weight. So my self-esteem was really rock bottom. And then, of course, when I hit puberty and started to notice boys and noticing that boys were noticing me, Oh, I was terrified. Mm. It, it was a time really when I should have been having that bit of enjoyment as yeah. kids do, young people. I just, I hated it. I, that's not true. There was a bit of me that wanted the attention, but I was terrified of it when I got it. So I hid away. And then I'd see all my friends having boyfriends and then feeling really upset because I just wanted to share that, but was too scared to do it. Uh, I just thought I was ugly. I thought I was boring. I just thought I was awful. There was no praise or anything. In fact, I remember my mum saying to me one time when I was putting makeup on to go, if you sit there long enough looking in that mirror, you'll see old Nick himself. So that was the kind of lack of encouragement that we got. Not just that, but actually saying we would see the devil. Yeah, that is, that's less than lack of encouragement. That's negative it's discouragement, yes. right? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, what I then realised, my therapist said, your mum was probably feeling quite envious of you and your sister mm -hmm. when the, 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 the daughters start to grow and mature and, and the mother's feeling a bereavement and loss and grief about her youth. But of course, we didn't know that. All, all she did was confirm that I was shit, that I thought I was shit. And so my self-image was appalling. What I used to do a lot was I had to see myself. I used to stand in front of windows and mirrors I remember once somebody said to me, I'm very vain, but it wasn't that I had to know I existed because I just thought I was a space. There was nothing to me. I needed to see myself to know I really existed as a person. But it's like everything else, isn't it? When you're going through it, it feels normal. You don't know um, different, right? No. I knew it wasn't, there was something wrong because I could see other people I knew not feeling like this and being bold enough to do things. I think... Uh, my relationship with my sister was really poor. My sister was a completely different kettle of fish to me. She was more dominant than I was, even though she was the second child. And she was much better at school than I was. I was constantly being told off for not giving my homework in and my books were messy. I knew I wasn't stupid. It was like I couldn't, I just couldn't get past something. It was like I was behind something and I couldn't get past it. And it didn't matter how hard I tried. It was almost like the more I tried, the worse it became. When I, I went to convent school, I absolutely hated it. It was quite strict and it was very academic and I wasn't academic at all. And I was constantly in trouble for not doing my work, always failing my exams. The interesting thing was that the nuns actually really liked me. Liked me. The lay teachers couldn't stand me because I was always getting into trouble. I never did anything really bad. We weren't bad, but I was just, 
mischievous. I feel quite pleased with myself that I was quite mischievous because I thought I did have something about me that meant I was pushing the boundaries. But but the nuns really liked me and I loved and I began to really love history. I started reading there was a series of history books. They were sort of novels written by a woman called Jean Pallady. She used to write about all the kings and queens of England. I used to love all of that. I remember walking up the road with one of the sisters and she was like, oh, goodness me, Geraldine, I didn't realise that you actually understood so much about stuff. And I was, but in that situation, I was happy because it was informal and we were just chatting. But the minute I went into a class and I had to learn, I was just terrified. Mm. But they put me in a lower stream. And actually, that was better for me. I always remember when that year the parents' evening came and I used to be terrified of the parents' evening because my, my reports were always terrible. My mum and dad used to come home and really have a go at me because I was just doing nothing. And actually they came back and said that she thought you'd make a brilliant teacher. I was shocked because nobody had thought that I was capable of But you know what? That was such a special thing. I thought, my God, this woman, she thinks I can do something. Yeah. I got that. And I held it and I kept it. It was like a precious jewel that was given to me. So I made my way through school. But those years up until I was about 16, I felt it was just awful. And I think if there was ever a time I could have taken my life, it was then. I was seriously depressed now looking back on it. All that on top of just being a teenager, yeah. And being a teenager. and, and Yes, exactly. Your emotions are just going nuts anyway. Absolutely, absolutely. But not having anybody to say it's because of that, it's Mm. because of this. It's just the turmoil that I felt inside me. There was all these feelings, my growing sexuality and all that. And, of course, my my mother being a Catholic was like, now you've got to be careful with men and da-da-da-da-da. And, of course, that just terrified me. I thought, oh, my God, if I show any kind of interest I'll get raped or attacked by men because that was the kind of message that my mum was sending out. It absolutely terrified me to think that I had that kind of power, Hmm. that I could cause men to misbehave and I had to be good. Again, I was truly terrified. I was truly terrified of that. But when it came to doing what they called my O levels, as they called them, the sort of first level of exams, when I was, God, I was 16, I think it was, I wasn't allowed to do A-levels because they didn't think I was bright. And I was entered for those. And I was not going to. And then one day, it was like a thought came into my head and then said, if you don't do this, you're proving everybody correct. And literally overnight, even to this day, I, I, I remember at the time thinking, I don't know how this has happened. And this is somebody who hadn't bothered doing any work and was just deemed as being completely useless. I just started to work and I just started um, revising. And I thought, I'm going to do this. Anyway, I took my exams and took, I think I took about seven CSEs, they called, and you had to get grade one. We had to go to the head teacher's office to collect our results. And I got called into the office and the head teacher said to me, I had to look twice to make sure these were your results got grade ones in five CSEs and grade twos in two, which was phenomenal. And nobody had expected me to do so well. And neither had I. Well, I was shocked. I was shocked. That was brilliant. And I remember looking at that certificate and I couldn't believe it. I walked away from her office and I was just, I was over the moon. I was just so over the moon. And then I went on the following year because my mum said to me, 
maybe you could get yourself a little job as a secretary, Geraldine. So go and do secretarial skills. And of course, I did secretarial skills, which I hated. And typing and long mind you the shorthand I really wish I kept because it's brilliant that's a brilliant skill to learn shorthand so buoyed by my success I decided to go to further education college to do my A levels which was the next tier of exams that the kids take between 16 and 18 in this country I went to a technical college that was transformational for me not academically (laughs) but personally I went from this really introverted severely introverted and very depressed teenager to this extroverted young woman who made friends I was the social secretary at the student union and used to book bands and tell them who their guest lists were it was unbelievable the change the shift that I made almost overnight that two years was astonishing for me because from a social and personal development my development moved so quickly had got boyfriends and and felt like I just it was unbelievable really and I'm not even sure to this day how that happened to be quite frank I have done some inventory around it because it was so radical in the same way that me suddenly one day deciding I'm going to do this with my exams went from this really depressed, disinterested, low self-esteem kid to suddenly thinking, I'm going to do this. And similarly, when I went to college, that encouraged me. I didn't pass any exams because I was too busy having a good time. (laughs) (laughs) I made a show of doing some revision, but I wasn't interested. I did think that I wanted to go to university. I did decide I was going to university and I didn't have the foggiest idea what I was going to do, but I thought I'm going to go to university. Uh, But I couldn't go to university in the end because I failed all my exams. So I went to work. By this time, I was in a relationship with somebody who I stayed with until I was 38. So we were together from when I was 17 uh, onwards. So I went to work and I did various jobs, office jobs. And I thought, this is not for me. I worked in shops and I like retail, actually. I like because I like chatting to people, but not office work. I wanted to do something. I knew I wanted to go to university. I was determined, but I thought, how am I going to? I can't. So I got a job in the end as a lab technician in a school. Part of the deal was that they were going to send me to college to do what is called City and Guilds. And City and Guilds was equivalent to A-levels in sciences. Now, biology I was good at at school. And the reason why I was good at biology at school was because even though I still didn't understand a word that the teachers were telling me, it was because it was practical and I, I, I knew that if I watched what everyone was doing, that I would know what I had to do next. And once I knew what I was doing, I understood what, what was being asked of me. My maths was terrible. My English was terrible, really. And I liked physics. I loved physics. but There's a lot of, a lot of maths there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. If I'd been good at maths, I would have done physics. I love it as a subject. I think it's brilliant. I really like science. I remember my dad taking us to the science museum when we were kids and I just loved going there. So I knew science was my thing, but I obviously it's like saying mm, I, I know living in mansions is my thing, but I can't <laughs> <laughs> My dad was very brilliant. He was self-taught and he was a clever man, but you know, an unhappy man. And he was a bit of a tyrant and his boundaries were not particularly very good when me and my sister were 
teenagers he used to hang around outside our bedroom doors and even with him there wasn't a great sense of safety around there was no physical abuse as such but there was that boundary crossing and I never felt really safe with him because I didn't feel sense that he wouldn't be able to maintain those boundaries and I think I was right about that so of course that added to my terror when my mother was warning us off but my dad was a bright man he was a clever man and had a very interesting life in his own and I think academically I moved more towards my dad's inclinations of science so anyway I applied to go to this college course when I got this job as a lab technician now I didn't have the qualifications to get in because I needed maths and I needed chemistry. I'd had biology, but I didn't have any of those other subjects. So I thought what I would do, because I was so desperate to go, that I would tell them I had all those subjects and that I would say that I lost my certificates. I applied for the course. And I remember the first day when I went in to enrol, the, the guy was going round looking at everyone's certificates and he got to the young chap who was before me and he the yes young chap said I haven't got my certificates and I can't find them and he said you have to bring them next week otherwise we can't enroll you on the course and my heart sank because I thought what am I going to do because this is my, this was like my last chance and as God is my witness no this was the days before mobile phones he got called out of the class because somebody wanted him on the telephone and he never came back to me he never ever came back to me and asked me so I got on the course, I was doing maths, I was doing physics, I was doing biochemistry and chemistry. I'd never done any of those subjects. I remember sitting there at the first lesson thinking, oh my God, I don't know what the hell this woman is talking about. <laughs> what I did was I went to the bookshop that weekend and I got the lower grade of the subjects. So I was more or less tutoring myself to try and bring myself up. and then one of the girls that I made friends with Sheila she was lovely she was probably one of the brightest women I've ever met in my whole life and she tutored me through that course consequently I came out of that course with distinctions and merits in all those subjects and with that I decided to go to university I had no idea what I wanted to do I didn't want to be a teacher after working in the school and one day I went to a library and opened up a careers book and the book opened up onto speech therapy, which is sort of speech pathology, as you call it. I immediately thought that's what I want to do. I'd never met a speech therapist before, but I just thought <laughs> oh, that's, <laughs> that's it. So I applied to university. I only got accepted in one because they were the only one that would accept me without the A-levels. And so I got to university in the end. When I look back on it now, I think where it links into my awareness of my higher power I believe that God was with me every step of the way because those things happened when they shouldn't have happened really they shouldn't have happened but they did so I went to university and I, I still do that job and I love it I absolutely love it it's just such a gift paradoxically I believe that my experiences as a child has actually given me the necessary tools to really connect with the children that I work with because obviously they've got communication difficulties. I had communication difficulties. And my therapist, when I was in therapy, said, it's interesting that you chose that career because you're helping people to find the voice that you never had. It, then I crashed around when I was 30. I hit a rock bottom. I think probably I was on the verge of a breakdown. My life had changed and 
I think the fact that I was doing the job that I did was almost forcing me to meet myself, the bit of me that I'd suppressed so ruthlessly. That was the time that I lost my connection to the thing that I always felt I had with me. So I ended up in therapy for 10 years, seeing this therapist for three times a week. And yeah, I was in a bad way. I was in a bad way. It was all those things that I thought were normal, being beaten, being depressed, suicidal. I remember even saying to my then partner, my mum used to beat me, but it never did me any harm. I really believed that until the, the bubble was burst and the pain that I felt the suffering that I felt was so awful and realised that actually that wasn't the way life was meant to be and it wasn't right. Even to the fact that my therapist, so I was in my 30s and I remember she said to me, but you are an extremely attractive woman. And do you know what? I didn't know who she was talking. I thought, who is she talking about? <laughs> I think I went completely silent. It was almost like she was actually able to hold a mirror up to me to to show me, start to see who I really was as a person. But the grief I felt was so intense because I felt I'd lost so much. I'd never been able to see me Mm. for years and years. The other thing was I decided that I wasn't going to have children because I was terrified that I'd be like my mum. I was so scared that I would beat them like my mum beat me. But anyway, so I was in therapy and and it was transformational, but it was painful. Also, it meant that my mum and my relationship with my mum fell to pieces Mm. because Mm -hmm. I was so angry. I was so angry. The anger poured and I couldn't stop. I just felt this anger and I couldn't stop being angry at her. Then when I was in my 30s, I left the guy that I'd been with because I realised that my relationship with him was... It wasn't a bad bloke, but I'd surrendered so much to him. And I realised that what I'd done was I'd literally gone from home to him. So he was the other controlling person. I felt I had to find myself and I couldn't do it within the confines of that relationship. And I had to leave him. And that was hard because he had been a rock to me when I was feeling at my, my lowest ebb. I was scared of the dark and he taught me how not to be scared of the dark. And he loved me and I wanted somebody to love me. But there was a price to pay for that. But I just realised that I didn't love him anymore and I needed to leave him. Mm. And that was really difficult. But I was still in therapy and she helped me leave him. And I set up home on my own. First time I'd had my own home, I was terrified. I was really scared of being on my own. I started to become an independent practitioner. Then I bought my flat a couple of years later. Then I started to do lots. Of, I made loads of new friends. I changed my friendship circle. I was in my career. I got a new flat. I actually started to do boxing. My brother was doing it. So he brought me and he said, do this. And I thought, oh, my God, I don't want to do that. So, <laughs> un- so unwomanly. But it was fantastic. It was brilliant. I absolutely loved it. I made so many friends through the boxing club and really began a different kind of life. I started to go on holiday on my own. But the thing was, I still didn't feel I'd finished something. I'd finished with my therapist in my early 40s, and but I knew there was something that wasn't finished, but I didn't want to go back into therapy. I still was haunted by dark feelings of despair. If things didn't go right, if things started to fall apart, I would start to get really anxious and anxiety and fear. I was always fearful of something happening. So 
on some level, my life was operating in a way that seemed to be okay. But there was another side to me that still felt deeply insecure and fearful in the world. But I hid it. And I even hid it to, to myself. But I, I did enjoy my 40s. So I was working terribly hard. I was socialising hard and drinking, not hard, but too much, really. I did have relationships with different guys, but nothing really lasted. Then I met this man that I was talking about at the beginning. And I adjusted to the idea that I might not, I was dating, but I thought maybe I'm not going to meet anybody. By which time I thought, you know what, I'm all right. I've got my friends. Wasn't worried about it. And then this guy walked into my life and, and I thought I'd met my other half, my soulmate, my soulmate. I thought I met my soulmate and I was made up. I thought, oh my God, I never thought that I was going to meet somebody at this stage of my life. I fell completely hook, line and sinker in a way. I don't think I'd ever felt that way about it, not even with my ex. And for a while, things were okay. The other thing to say is that about a year into that relationship, my brother, John, who was the youngest one, was diagnosed with motor neuron disease. In fact, he rang me and asked, said to me, there's something wrong. And he told me, I knew exactly what it was, but obviously I didn't tell him. I said, you've got to go to the doctor. So my brother got diagnosed and alongside that, I sensed that something was terribly wrong with the relationship that I was in. I couldn't work it out. And the thing is, he was clever because he gave me a backstory of trying to commit suicide. He'd uh, been in a relationship with a woman who had three of his children and and he was saying that things had gone wrong and uh, he was so depressed and he tried to kill himself. And so he gave me all this backstory. So for a long time, I thought he must be depressed but the thing was, he was like a Jekyll and Hyde. He could be really loving, really amazing, and then he could be evil. And I was like bewildered by this. I thought, what the hell is going on here? But of course, being a codependent, of course, I didn't call myself at that stage a codependent, but I felt it was me. It was something I was doing wrong. I thought it must be me. Yep. So I sucked all the responsibility on for this. But as time went by, I thought there's something else that's going on here. I don't know what it is. Do you know what I felt? This is how I felt. I felt like there was a dead body because he moved into my flat and I felt like I was a dead body and there was a smell of rotting corpses, well, but, I couldn't, but I couldn't find the body. And that's what it felt like. And I began to get really quite creeped out about this because it felt really evil. But of course I didn't know. Plus my brother was ill. And that was devastating. I helped to look after him. So it was really hard to focus. And to be honest with you, I, I just didn't want to even think that this man who I was really madly in love with, who I thought was the man of my dreams, who was my other side of me, was was something was seriously wrong. And he was a wrong, he was a wrong one, as we like to say here, a wrong one. I was in denial. I wasn't a forgetting this time. I was in denial about it. The other thing that was really unlike me was I started to feel really jealous and fearful and anxious in a way I'd never felt before. But he'd do things like he'd give me the silent treatment. He would disappear. He'd like manufacture reasons for having an argument and then disappear off for three days. I just felt really unsettled. But then what he would do was that if he thought that I was in any way moving away or towards coming to a point of thinking this isn't right, I've got to do something, he would then start to be really loving and to draw me back in again. 
Anyway, my brother died in 2012. I was devastated when my brother died because I loved him. And he was such a funny guy. And even to this day, I really miss him. And it was so cruel how he died. It was really cruel because he was a big man. And uh, to see him die like that was just awful. But when he died, it meant that I had time now to focus on this relationship that I was in. And it hit me like a train that this man was using me. He didn't love me. I, it was a painful. It, it hit me and then I went instant. No, 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 I didn't want to see that. No, I didn't. My pride was so great. It, in this time, I had started to go to CODA because I felt like I was dying. I knew that the relationship was going to kill me. It was the weirdest thing. I felt like my mind was being captured. And I felt like I was losing myself inside this relationship. And I was terrified. I guess I was so enmeshed with my mum, I started to become enmeshed with him. Mm -hmm. But he was a really sick man who was deliberately manipulating me to become enmeshed so that I would lose myself completely. So you heard about CODA somewhere? You knew about it as a professional or what? No, my brother was a CA. Uh, and um, I used to go to some of the meetings with him. And I really loved the meetings. I loved the 12-step. I loved the peacefulness of it. And I said to my brother, oh, God, I wish there was something like that for... I said, maybe I've got to become a Coke addict and I can join. <laughs> no, I don't think that's a good idea, Geraldine. But why don't you go to CODA? And I think I was one year in. I was one year in. 2010, I think it was, I first went to CODA. But I was scared. I knew something was wrong and I was losing and I had to do something because I thought if I don't, if I don't do something, something terrible is going to happen to me. So I went to CODA and I went to my first meeting and the first reading that was there was step one. Because you see, I'd always felt that I had to be in control and in charge and the idea that my life was unmanageable before that. That was like a sense of shame that somehow, see, because I, when I realised that this relationship was so toxic, I was so sh full of shame. I didn't want to admit that I'd got myself at this stage in my life. Mm -hmm. I'd got myself involved with a man. And, and I remember listening to, on the radio some years before about women who were in abusive relationships. And I thought, I'd never allow myself to do something. <laughs> I was never going to be one of those women. I never saw myself like that. I remember going into that meeting and that step one, and it was like, it's okay to feel like that, mm -hmm. was why. And that was like the lifeline. That was the lifeline that was thrown to me that day, that night I went to that meeting. I held it and I still hold it. And I've never missed a meeting unless I've been away on holiday or I've not been well. I went to those meetings religiously. It's been a tough journey because I had to face some really difficult truths about myself. The fact that I wasn't this independent person, that I was very vulnerable and I was extremely needy. And I didn't like to admit that about myself. The idea that I would even regard myself as someone who was needy was something that I would rather have stuck pins in my eyes, to be honest. Yeah, exactly. I remember when I had, we talked about doing the step four and the inventory and I thought, because even when I was in therapy, I hated the process of opening up because I had repressed myself and I had developed 
a tyrant of an inner critic that operated to abuse me, to keep me from straying off in case I got abandoned, beaten, all those terrible things that I was frightened of. And so the turning point for me, I suppose the lovely thing about the 12 steps is the idea that you have a relationship with God of your own understanding. I realised that the God that I had been worshipping, and I had kept my faith, was perhaps not a loving God. It was loving whilst I behaved myself, but if I wasn't behaving myself, then God was going to punish me. And I remember when I started to think about developing a relationship with God in that way, because I still felt so hurt about all the things that happened to me over the years. And I remember saying, God, I want an apology from you (laughs) because I did not ask to be born. I still had a lot of suffering inside, even though on one level I was coping with the world and facade management, facade management, facade management. But inside I was bleeding. So I did that thing where they say you've got to write what you feel with one hand and then you write the reply that you want to hear. So I wrote to God and I said, I want you to apologise to me. And if I get an apology, I'm going to do this. But, you know, what I wrote back to myself and I wish to God I kept it Mm. was that I felt that I got a response from God. and And that was it. I was on board because I really felt that I got something that touched me and and made me realise that that this was what I needed to do. In the meantime, I had started to realise that the man I was living with was possibly a psychopath. And I began to realise he was um, meeting up with other women. I started to read um, profiles of, he was either that or he's a a covert malignant narcissist. And I realised that there was nothing that I could ever do. I began to wise up and the advice was online, they're not going to change. Don't try and change them. Best thing to do is leave. Except for me, I could change him. I was going to be able to change him. But the realisation that he wasn't going to change and that he he wasn't capable of loving me nor anyone else. And fortunately, one of the women at the Coda Group had been in a similar sort of relationship with somebody. So she helped me to get. But she said, look, you've got to be careful. Because if he knows that he could turn nasty and he could try to harm you, so you're going to have to take this very carefully. And, of course, that was the most horrific. And I remember thinking, what have I done to deserve this, to to be in this? But I fell in love with somebody and and I could end up being killed. Anyway, she said, look, wait, when he leaves you and he fakes and row, you've got to close the door behind him and never let him back in your life again. And um, I was really scared of that because I was scared of the consequences. So in 2014, 20, yeah, 2015, I think it was, the opportunity came. I had to, it was the most terrifying time. And he began to suss out that I'd sussed him out as well. The most terrifying thing that happened was that one day we were sitting at the table having breakfast. He used to change physically when he started to go a bit strange on me he would go white his eyes would go dark like a shark's and his lips would go blue it was quite scary I remember sitting opposite him and I was eating and I lifted up and I looked at him and he was looking at me with the most like he hated me like I was looking in the bowels of hell I went completely cold inside and I just wanted to cry. I just remember thinking I just wanted to run. I was so frightened. I was terrified. But anyway, he did 
manufacturer row. He walked out and then I locked the doors and he disappeared off. And then I just sent him a message and said, look, I don't think this is not working. And I, I think it's better if we just go our separate ways. And he accepted that, but only because he thought I wasn't going to go through with it because we'd had a couple of situations where I told him to leave and then I brought him back again, of course. Anyway, he he, I think he just thought I wasn't going to do it. And then I remember saying to my friend when the, the day came, when he took all this stuff away, I said, oh, my God, I'm so glad that's over. And she said, look, Geraldine, I hate to tell you this, but this is not going to be over until he either he dies or you die. And she was right. He stalked me for three years. He also made two attempts on my life, which would have looked like accidental. I have a caravan and he punctured the gas line in the caravan. And so when I connected the gas up, Fortunately, I had the window open. I could smell the gas coming through. So I quickly turned off the canister. I was just about to put the kettle on to have a drink. Oh, boy. Yeah. I got somebody to come and check it. And they said, oh, there's a little punk. There's a little hot. And I knew straight away it was him. I just knew because it, there was no way it, that, that anything could have got to it because it's tucked right inside. And because he was very handy, he knew about stuff like that. He would know. And the other thing that he did, which I only discovered about a year later, was that he'd actually tampered with the light fitting in this room and attached a live wire to the metal surround. Fortunately, talk about God, my higher power, the light wasn't working, so I never used it. Mm. I got an electrician in and he discovered it. It was horrendous, but he would still come back here and supposedly to meet neighbours. And I had my little caravan. I love my caravan. It's like a little bolt hole. And he used to turn up there and I thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do? He's never going to let me go. I was actually thinking about giving up my caravan. I was thinking about moving because I thought he's never going to let me go. And by which time he'd also got another girlfriend. I felt so sorry for her. I have to say, I had no feelings for him at this point. My feelings had... I have got the capacity to switch off. I think my defence mechanism that you were talking about earlier served me very well because once I realised what he was, I was able to switch from being completely besotted, you know, that obsession into I just went cold, completely cold on him. He actually confronted me a couple of times when, in, and I just ignored him, walked straight past him and didn't pretend he wasn't there. I have got that capacity to do that. I sort of remember thinking, I wonder if I've got that narcissism, but I think probably I have to some extent, have got that sort of narcissistic kind of capacity to switch, to shut down on my feelings because of, because that was my way of coping as a child, to deal with that wound that threatened constantly to overwhelm me. And in a way, it served me well, particularly in this instance. So I didn't know what to do because my lovely little bolt hole caravan that um, was my little hidey hole was now being threatened by him. He actually turned up late one night up on the road. He had a camper van and he parked it up there. There was a sea shanty festival that I used to love going to in October, so it's dark. And I used to because I'm used to wandering around there late at night. It's in the village. So I used to walk to the station and then come back late and walk back to the caravan. But this night, I decided I wasn't going to do that. I thought, no, I'm going to take the car. 
so then I'll have the car to come back and I won't have to worry about trains and things. That night I came back, his van was parked at the top of the lane and I could have ended up walking straight past that van. So again, my higher power, I, that's the only way I can explain it because if I'd walked past it, God knows what he might try to do to me. Then about two years ago, I found out through a mutual friend that he had cancer. He put out a message on Facebook. I'd blocked him, obviously. But my friend sent me a screenshot of the message and his message was for me. It was the way it was worded. And I thought what he wants is he wants me to come and see him because apparently they're terrified of dying. They hate death because that's the ultimate. They're constantly gathering sources of attention and what they call fuel. Mm-hmm. And the idea that death is ultimately the total depletion of the thing that keeps them alive. He was scared of death. When my brother died, he couldn't see him. He didn't go to his own father's funeral. But of course, I wasn't going to go. There's no way I was going to go after he tried to kill me twice. I didn't tell a lot of people about him because I didn't do any smearing because it was advised not to, that people had to find out for themselves. So I kept really quiet about him. And it was only my really close friends that knew what what had happened. And I have to say, I was praying that it was true because I thought at first it might have been a lie. I I thought he might have been just doing it deliberately because that's not unusual for them to do it, to try and draw people back in. Then, and so two years ago, I got found out through a mutual friend that he had died. And I have to say, I cannot tell you how grateful I was. I felt compassion for the man that he should have been, could have been that he wasn't, that he had become overwhelmed by this. I feel it's terrible, really, when you think that whatever happened to him in his life turned him into a monster. And I felt sad for the man that he could have been. But for the man that he was, I have to say, I felt nothing for him. So during this time, you're still going to CODA, you're working through the steps. How do you think working the process of recovery sustained you, helped you to see what was going on more clearly in this horrible situation? I believe that being in CODA saved my life. I believe that being part of the fellowship saved my life. I remember the first, probably about the first year, I I didn't, I mean, I was in CODA for about six years before I got a sponsor because getting sponsorship in CODA is quite difficult. But I religiously went to the meetings. I did my inventory. I did my prayer and meditation. The prayer and meditation kept me sane through that relationship. I remember sitting in, he'd, he'd done some something dreadful. And I was really feeling crazy in my head and my head was going to explode. And I felt terrible distress. And I remember doing the meditation. And, and then this there was this voice that said just go in and ask him if he wants a cup of tea and I I went into the room and he was being vicious he was being really unpleasant and I just walked in and said would you like a cup of tea and he was so shocked because he didn't expect that it completely broke the spell that he had Hmm. so the prayer and the meditation and the inventory kept me sane going to the meetings kept me sane but I remember we went away on holiday somewhere And I remember I was doing my prayer and meditation and he walked in on me and he said to me, there's not enough room in this relationship for the three of us. So he was terrified of my higher power. 
Mm. which of course the devil would be scared of. And obviously the support from the fellows, my fellows and my fellow who helped me out of that relationship. I don't know what I would have done without it. I remember I had a sort of sponsor. I was very much the victim. I saw myself as the victim. I was quite a victim person when I went into CODA first. I remember saying things like, well, if only he was like this, and if only he was like that. And she said to me, look, Geraldine, when are you going to start writing your own inventory? I knew what that meant. But my mind, my black and white mind meant that I thought she was blaming me for the problems that were in the relationship. And I was so angry. I was so angry that I nearly stopped going because I thought she was putting me. Then I listened again and I heard how she meant it. And I realised that the way he was trapping me was he, he found all my weak points, my my shame spots. He knew them better than I did. And I realised that unless I was able to, you know, work and accept those and acknowledge those and just be with those things that he was going to trap me. He was just going to pull me in and haul me in and haul me in each time. For instance, he'd say to me, you are, and I, and I remember thinking, whatever it was, he called me, I remember thinking, I'm not like that. I'm not like that. And then thinking, why the hell am I worried what he thinks? And I remember saying to him one time, yes, I am like that. That's okay. And that was it. That was the beginning right. that I began to find free. I was able to disentangle myself from him by cleaning up my side of the street, by accepting responsibility for my defects of character and not sliding them inside his to pretend that I was this good person and he was all evil, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And I think that's what codependents do. As codependents, what we do is we slide our darkness into the darkness of the others so that we seem to be really super-duper nice people. It's the other person's fault. And I do think that as codependents, we do that. I did it. And I had to face that. I had to face that I was actually, is it what slide a bad intention inside a good one is the term. And I had to face that my darkness was what drew me to him. My need and the need that I didn't want to accept that I had, I had to face that need in me. And I had to then realise that I had to become my own knight in shining armour to myself, that the only person that was ever going to heal me was me with God's help. So, yes, the kind of understanding of it accelerated my understanding of me. It, ironically, I had to meet him in order to draw out the darkness of myself, in order to heal that wound in order for me to start accepting myself as who I really was, I had to meet him. He was my liberator. So ironic. I'm up against my stopping point here. It feels like it's just flown by at that time. I think that sounds like a really good place to stop. I asked you to pick some songs, and you, in a couple of minutes, off the top of your head, picked three songs. The first one you picked, Love Twins by Marvin Gaye and Diana Ross. How does that song speak to you oh well i love marvin Gaye and diana ross i love their voice they they did an album called love twins i think it expressed something about that sort of codependent need to find the other half if you like so i think that's what it speaks to it's a beautiful song a lot of that music of that time was always about heartache heartbreak finding someone to to complete you mm-hmm. 
upcoming topics include music and recovery. Have you found particular artists or songs or pieces that speak to you in recovery? Maybe they reflect what it was like, or maybe they inspire you to new growth. Tell us about them. We welcome your thoughts. You can join our conversation. Please leave us a voicemail or send us an email. You can call and leave a voicemail at 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer, or you can send a voice memo or email to feedback at therecovery.show. We'd really love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions, and if you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. If you would like advance notice for some of our topics so that you can contribute to that topic, you can sign up for our mailing list by sending an email to feedback at therecovery.show. Put email in the subject line to make it easier to spot. And our website is therecovery.show, where we have all the information about the show, including notes for each episode, links to the readings, videos for the music, and so on. Take a little break before we look at the mailbag. Second song that you chose, uh, very different, Sex Pistols, God Save the Queen. I love that. I remember when the Sex Pistols started because this coincided with the time that I changed from this really shy, very depressed young person into this kind of adventurous. That was a real break as well because punk was a real break from the music at that time. I love punk. I just embraced it. And I just loved the power and and I just love the energy because it was a complete break. Punk was just a complete break from everything that, and and that's how I felt at the time. Yeah, it was amazing. So I remember hearing it thinking, whoa, this is brilliant. I love this. But it matched where I was at that time. It was just something completely new, something different, something that just blew out of the water from nowhere. Terry wrote with a topic idea of loving your alcoholic is okay. Terry says, I'm currently married to an active alcoholic. My husband will admit that he had a problem, but he doesn't want help. It seems we are made to feel guilty to love our spouse for having a drinking problem. The outside public view is that we should control them, fix them, or leave them. I think a lot of us that choose to stay with an alcoholic feel shame, and it's just not talked about. And Terry Notes, I also wrote to you before about online meetings and finding a sponsor, and I found one! Exclamation point. Thanks, Terry, for writing. Thanks for sharing your update. I will say that I am somebody who continued to love my alcoholic while she was still drinking and while I was in the Al-Anon recovery. And I think Al-Anon recovery is what enabled me to keep loving her and to stay with her as she found her own way eventually to sobriety. But I didn't know that was going to happen for at least a couple of years. I think it was almost three years. And I really felt that Alanine gave me permission to do that. So it is a good topic. And putting it out there, please share your experience, strength, and hope, as we mentioned before. Grace commented on episode 356 with Kathy. This was domestic violence and other unacceptable behavior. She writes, Kathy, Thank you for doing this share and using your journey to help others. You will bolster courage and resolve, especially the point where you wrestled with your highly compassionate and hopeful attributes and how that clouded your view of what was actually happening. Brilliant. Again, thank you. Thanks, Grace. I did pass that on to to Kathy. Karen says, Hi, Spencer. 
I've recently started listening to your podcast, and I want to thank you. It's really been helping me. A little about me, my dad is an alcoholic, has been for years, and has no desire to stop. I have spent years fighting it, thinking that I am finally going to say the thing that gets through to him, and I have finally realized that what I say is never going to be enough. I am powerless. I started going to Al-Anon and listening to your podcast because, with the help of my boyfriend, I realized that I needed to find a better way to process this, to deal. My father's abuse had made me so angry, and I was starting to take it out on my boyfriend. He told me I needed help, I need tools, and here I am now. The whole process is a lot. I am starting the steps and going to meetings, but there's one topic that I'm really struggling with, and I haven't heard anyone talk about it. The enablers. This most recent incident is the cause of my need for action. I live on the other side of the country from my parents. My mom has cancer, and this past January, she had to undergo radiation treatment. I returned home for three weeks to help out. This was before I started the program. The entire time I was there, I kept my distance from my father. I kept him at arm's length. One night at dinner, my father drank way too much. When he went to pour another glass, I told him he was done, and he blew up. He told me to go F myself and stormed out of the room, falling on his face on the way out the door. When I realized he had the keys to the car, I rushed out after him and had to wrestle them out of his hand. He told me to leave him the F alone and that I was a real piece of shit. I got the keys away from him and went up to my room. In the aftermath of this event, I realized that I wasn't only battling my father's addiction, but my brother and mother too, the enablers, because they blamed me. They said my distant and cold behavior caused this, and if I had been more accepting, parenthesis, enabling, it wouldn't have happened. I am not going to cut my father out of my life, as he is my mother's primary caretaker, and she is sick, and I love her. So I have turned to Al-Anon to help me find the tools to deal with him. But what about the enablers? My parents are coming to visit this week, and it's my dad's birthday. I made a reservation at a restaurant, but I wanted to make sure that my father wouldn't be driving that night, since he will definitely drink. I told my mother that they needed to find a way to get to the restaurant. Either my brother or I will drive. And she talked to my dad about it, and he said he won't drink that night. Then she went on to say, but it is his birthday, and I don't think it is really fair to him. Enabling. My brother pours him drinks, makes excuses. My mother and brother obviously don't feel the same way I do about my dad's drinking. And as much as I am struggling to deal with my father, my brother and mother are just as big a problem. Is there any way you could address this on your show? I am at a loss. Thank you so much for your podcast. It has really been helping, and I keep coming back. Thank you. Karen. This is not a problem that I recall having. I think I was the primary enabler in my loved one's life until I found recovery. So I'm reaching out to you. If you are in this situation, if you have been in this situation, if you have found recovery tools that help you in this situation, please write, please call so that we can make an episode. Thank you. I guess I feel like the same tools of detachment that helped me to live with active alcoholism could also help in this situation. Detachment and powerlessness. So yeah, keep coming back. Ashley has a suggestion for a podcast topic, the concepts of service or warranties. I searched through your list online and didn't see these on the webpage. 
And you're right, Ashley, you didn't see them on the web page. And the reason you didn't see them there is that I hid the the fact that it, we were talking about the concepts because I figured if I said, hey, we're going to talk about concepts of service, that some number of you would say, oh, boring. I'm not going to listen to that episode. And I think the concepts of service are important. They help me learn to get along with the communities that I am part of, with the organizations that I'm part of, more than get along, really, to work within the systems, the family, work within church. So I really wanted to to talk about them and not put people off right at the beginning. I don't know how well that worked. I could go look at my numbers, but I won't. We did a couple of concepts at a time. Akila and I did those episodes back in 2015. And I put sort of the principles that each of the concepts uh, was about in the title instead. So it would say something like responsibility and authority. So those were episodes 102, 110, 114, 120, 128, and 135. And I sent Ashley a link that actually will bring up all of those plus a couple of other things. And I will put that link in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 357. Pat left us a voicemail about domestic violence, unacceptable behavior. Hi, Spencer. This is um, Pat from the West Coast. I see that you've already recorded the domestic violence episode, and I really wanted to share on it before I listened to the episode itself. I had a lot of complex thoughts and feelings around it because it it's such a continuum. I just listened to one of the recordings around about maybe 206-ish that ended with a message from a listener who himself had become violent in their relationship. And I experienced that also very briefly one time pushing my son up against the wall and it's a very old house and his head cracked the wall, cracked the very old, I keep saying very old because it justifies it, plaster. But I was appalled. It was just very frightening that I had gotten that angry and that extreme in my reactiveness and clearly was reacting to my child. That's one end of the continuum is myself becoming so angry, throwing things, yelling, cussing, and ultimately this physical push of my child, which I don't know if they remember it or not, but very frightening for me. So I understand that insanity and pushing oneself to the edge of becoming like the person you're with. And then how does one define unacceptable behavior on either part? The the chaos and the ugliness in a home that is simply one that includes shouting or yelling or putting other people down or name calling, a lack of faith, a lack of support and understanding. All of those create unacceptable behavior. Living with an alcoholic, I was in an alcoholic marriage for 25 years, is something that grows over time. It morphs. It's that spin down very deep into needing my own recovery over time. And how do I define it? And I think 
the one thing I was able to ultimately really define was physical violence. That was the one thing where I was able to finally define what was acceptable and not acceptable on both sides. But really with the alcoholic was physical contact with our younger child first one time. And like many abusers, my husband tried to blame our child for the act. And I was actually able to see that for what it was and say, no, that's not acceptable. You can't blame the child. If you do that again, I won't stay with you. That will be the one thing that that is too far crossing the line. And that's actually what happened is I'd asked him to leave for probably the umpteenth time. But it was pretty clear that it was the end of the relationship and went to a family event. And my husband chose to be physically aggressive against our older child. And that was it. That that was absolutely the end. And it was also in many ways the unacceptable behavior, the violence, the threat of violence, the anger and cussing and yelling and just total chaos and negativity around that home, I realized ultimately what example did I want to give my children for what a marriage is supposed to be. And I did not want to show them that it was okay to be in a marriage like this. So those were really the ultimate motivations. I do remember when we got back from that family vacation, both the kids were out of the house and I chose to sleep at my brother's house, which was nearby. And my husband at that time said, why are you doing that? I said, I don't feel safe. And I didn't. And he said, well, I'm not going to hurt you. And I said, you say that now, but if you've been drinking, I can't trust that. So physical violence was the ultimate breaking point for me, the ultimate unacceptable behavior. But having been in Al-Anon for almost 16 years now, Having had 16 years of recovery, I would say I would at this time bring that bar much lower as to what is unacceptable behavior on my part as well as theirs and have held that bar in new relationships since then. Being willing to walk out of a room when things are just getting uncomfortable and ugly and name-calling and it's clear it's not going to go in a positive direction. Early in my recovery when I was still with my first husband, also learning to walk out of a room, that was a huge boundary. As I've gone through recovery and been able to look at myself and admit to myself my behaviors that perhaps mirrored his, my behaviors that contribute to the chaos and the negativity in the home, I've been able to create boundaries for myself. What are the acceptable behaviors for myself? And with practice, not perfection, but certainly much improvement, I have been able to get to that place in a new relationship where it is not only not violent, never has been, but It is also a much more peaceful relationship in which I use the 12 traditions. My current husband is not in a 12-step program, but he's very much a partner and we work on things together. And as time goes on and we both practice 
being our best selves and our best, for me, recovered self, then I have been able to be a partner who's able to set boundaries. And in setting boundaries, the relationship is much better because it means we're able to work through things in a positive, loving, collaborative way that I never knew was possible. That's where recovery brings me as a person who's been in what I would consider a very violent, dysfunctional home, not so much physical, but in other ways. So I hope that's helpful. Thank you so much. It's a difficult topic to talk about, and I really appreciate the opportunity. Okay, bye-bye. Love to you and all your listeners. Thank you, Pat. Amy writes, Hi, Spencer. I've been away from the recovery show for a while, but was wondering if you've ever done a show on my relationship with alcohol. Because I think, for me, it's a conflicted relationship. I resent it, but I want to be able to join in and enjoy cocktails and wine like everyone else. There's a lot of fear and anger wrapped up in my relationship with it. I would be interested in hearing what your listeners have to say about their relationship with alcohol. Thanks, Amy. Hey, Amy. I did a show back when called Do You Drink? And not sure of the number. Try to remember to put a link in the show notes where I talked a little bit about my relationship with alcohol. And I think talked about how that had changed as I dealt with alcoholism in my loved one. But what about your relationship with alcohol? What is it or is there one? Let us know. Email, phone, voicemail. Send a share. That sounds like that could be a really fascinating episode. Thanks for the idea. And Alina sent us shares about chaos and criticism and self-judgment. Hi, this is Alina. I just wanted to share on episode number 107, which was regarding chaos. I think this was a good topic for me right now because I guess chaos for me, I always used to think that it was something that was heard or seen and all over the place like drama like when it comes to family gatherings or work related issues but I guess recently I can see that the chaos is in my mind too I stuff that's going on in my head and one of the questions in the overview was why do we as codependents create chaos and for me I think that I just want to seek validation so bad. Recently with my qualifier, I guess in a way, I wish I could be as selfish as that person maybe and think about myself as much as that person does. I think about that and it's just crazy, but I just feel like I'm insignificant. What's after a relapse and things are different this time. I think my thinking is a little bit different. I'm a little bit more secure with myself and realizing that in order to feel okay or in order to get through the day or in order to get my mind clear, I have to do certain things to take care of myself. And before I didn't realize that, I just shut down and pulled away. But I know that for me, the chaos in my mind is like getting to me as far as in my mind, I guess it just kind of makes me sad that that um, someone isn't happy and as a codependent I take on those feelings and I want to fix it and make things better but I know that I can't do that and that's the frustrating part the chaos in my mind is 
I just want attention, I guess. I just want validation of how I'm feeling or I want that person to ask me how I'm doing or just to realize that I am going through some things too, but I just can't force it and I can't make things like that. I really like this topic because it just came at a perfect time because the chaos doesn't have to be me arguing with him or him arguing with me. I can take myself out of a situation and not let it get to that point. But also I need to take care of that chaos in my mind too, because that can affect me and what makes me second guess my decisions and what I need to be doing. I thank you for letting me share. Hi, it's Alina. I just wanted to share on episode 108, which was about criticism and self-compassion. This topic is always difficult for me because I do think that I'm harsher on myself than I should be. I'm always very critical. I think I'm a perfectionist, so I'm always wanting to do the right thing. I not want to make a mistake and just be strong and confident and not be the person that's asking for help or asking for what the answer is or guidance or any of that. But in my work life, I have a supervisor role. However, I do tend to consult with either people alongside me or people above me just to get their perspective. And there are times where I have to get a manager involved and find out what the policy is for any certain situation that I have to deal with at work. But I did like this topic because I feel like my sponsor and I are always talking about that voice inside our head and what is it saying? And would you talk to your friend, your best friend like that? And can you show some compassion and know that I'm, I am of value and, and worth and, you know, what I have to give or say, I, I should be validated and I shouldn't be so hard on myself. My sponsor is always saying, well, let's not say I should have done this. I should have done that. But I still, even though I try to fight it, I still find myself saying that sometimes. I know that I wouldn't talk to another human being like that. And so I guess I need to remind myself that I need to be gentle with myself. I guess it just depends on who's criticizing me. If it's someone really close to me, obviously it affects me a lot. If it's somebody in my family or definitely one of my qualifiers, it bugs me when things are said or judged and they're not true. And I find myself getting upset over it and getting really emotional. I I know that my attitude has changed a lot with criticism. I try to take it as constructive and not so much as, oh, you're a bad person and you're stupid or you're dumb or you're not important. Those words don't really come into my mind anymore. I do try to have compassion for myself and not really get so um, consumed with the negative talk to myself. I try to reason things out with other Al-Anon members and that seems to help talking to my sponsor. And I also need to realize that everyone is human. Everyone makes mistakes and I'm no different from that. I did like this topic. I know it's something that I definitely need to work on, especially probably the criticism part and just trying to not think the worst when someone criticizes me, maybe look at it as 
something I need to focus on and maybe do some soul searching and maybe try something different because maybe it doesn't necessarily mean that what I'm doing is wrong. It just maybe means that I can do things a little different sometimes and not be so critical of myself as well. Thank you for the topic and thank you for letting me share. Thank you, Alina. And the third one, I'm not familiar, I think, with this artist at all, Declan O'Rourke. You picked a song, Marrying the Sea. I um, used to sing. Uh, that could have been my other career, but um, maybe it was probably just as well it wasn't. I don't think I would have been able to cope with the music. So, But I used to sing a lot. But Declan O'Rourke, um, I heard him play in Camden in London years ago. And he's a folk singer. And it is just one of the most beautiful songs. And it's a song about a sailor who wants to marry the sea. But the sea talks back to him and says, you can't because I'm old and you'll want to go back on the land. And she talks about so many men have come to me, but they've all gone back. But in the last verses that he just thinks, oh, sod it, I'm going to do it. And then he just walks into the water and she So it's a bit sad, but it's so beautiful. It's a beautiful tune. I love folk music. And I've since started doing sailing. Mm -hmm. And sailing has been a massive meditative pastime once I'm on the water I feel so at ease I feel completely connected so it's something to do with I think the spirituality as well of embracing something bigger than myself and fearlessly walking into it just saying okay I'll do it (laughs) I'll just do it and I think that's my higher power I think thank you so much Thank you. Thank you for thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your story. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening and keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.